in um, in February of this year, Anthea and I entered into a deliberate discernment process concerning our involvement and calling in the life of Kerrang Baptist Church. This is a normal and expected part of healthy pastoral review. It is good practice. As this process has unfolded over the past six months, we have asked many questions of ourselves. We have liaised with our mentors. We have sought the prayerful input and wise counsel of others. And we've been as transparent and open as we believed would be healthy and appropriate. Foremost, we have sought to know the mind of Christ and the leading of the Holy Spirit, both for ourselves and for the church family. And we believe that God is drawing our time at Kerrang to a close. And that means that this is our last year here. We believe that God has a plan and a purpose for Kerrang Baptist Church, as we believe he does for us. But our walk with you and your walk with us is going to change. I love you very much, and I believe that what God has for you means you are going to need someone else. You are going to need different skills, different giftings, and God's person for that season. We are aware that this is unexpected news for some here. While we've been able to catch up with some folk one-to-one, this is the first some of you have heard. And I apologize for those of you who we wanted to touch base with one-on-one who we have not been able to. There is no conspiracy. There is no leadership spill. There is no scandal. We believe that this is simply the revealed will of the Lord God and that God is good. We don't know where we will go from here. We are not leaving because of any conflict or issue with leadership or any issue with our marriage or due to another job offer. We believe that over the last six months, the Lord has been revealing his will both for us and for this church. And we cannot authentically encourage others to be courageous and obedient and then refuse to be obedient ourselves. We love Kerrang Baptist Church. We love you, and this is a church family which we love being part of, and we would certainly stay if we were released to do so. This this church has... has been our family. And we are grateful for this every day. This church family is very blessed to have a committed and gifted and loving collection of leaders who serve them diligently and passionately and with humility. This is a church we love being part of. And while we have always said that we would stay for as long as the Lord would have us here, 
We hoped it would be longer. We trust the Lord. Though there are certainly things about this change which we and others may find confusing or questionable, we trust the Lord. We actually trust him. We trust his timing for Kerrang Baptist Church. We trust his leading and guiding throughout the discernment process. We trust his provision for leadership in the present season and also in the next season. We trust his provision for our family. We trust that his picture of the future is perfect. We trust his perspective and his will and his goodness. On Wednesday of this week, the elders will meet to begin addressing the practical implications which need to be considered between now and the end of the year. They will certainly appreciate you committing them in prayer before the Lord and you continuing to encourage and support them as we enter into a period of transition. Anthea and I also appreciate you bringing us and the kids before the Lord in prayer as we continue working this through as a family. Do you want to say something? (laughs) Please pray with me. Lord God, thank you. Thank you for the seasons. Thank you for the leaves that fall to let the sun through, only to be followed by flowers that bud. Thank you for the crisp cold of winter and the deep soaking warmth of summer. Lord, we trust you. We trust that you know the seasons better than we do. Please give us patience as you are patient with us. Please give us strength when the season is long or the change confronting. But let us love, Lord God, with your love, unchanging, still and present, timeless, always full. Help us to be thankful. Amen. I just uh... pray for these guys. Lord, we thank you for Bob and Anthony and their family. We thank you for their passion for you, their love for you, and all that they've brought to this church. And Lord, we know um, that they're struggling with this. And, Lord, we just ask that you will give them a real peace, a real rest in you. They have no idea where they're going, no idea what you're leading them to. Lord, we know that we can trust you. We know that you are a God of your word. You're an unchanging God, a God who loves each one of us individually. Lord, we just ask for a real peace, real rest in you for these guys as they wait on you, as they seek your will for the future. And we thank you again for them.
and for all they mean to us, for what they've brought to this church and for the growth that has been evident in so many. We just thank you again for your love and who you are. Amen. Amen. Those of you that are primary school aged or would like to be primary school aged, um, there is, it's 2019, you're allowed to be anything, it seems. Feel free to head out. Please open your Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I don't want you to leave here this morning with your thoughts being occupied with us. I want you to leave here with your thoughts occupied about the Lord Jesus Christ. So you're going to need your Bible open in front of you. This morning we're going to be reading 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And Paul is still going to be talking about the same topic he was talking about in chapter 8. When we had a look at chapter 8 last week, we arrived at this place of, of Paul's, Paul's conclusion that there were people in the Corinthian church that had knowledge, and because of that knowledge, they were exercising their freedom, the freedom that they had in Christ, the freedom um, to know that they no longer had to be keeping the law as they inherited it from the Old Testament, but something had shifted, something had changed. But with the freedom that they had, there were other people that saw them and did not understand. They did not have that head knowledge. And Paul specifically talks about people being in a temple, eating meat that had been offered to an idol. That's the picture. That's the scenario which Paul was looking at. And Paul says to these people who are exercising their freedom that he says, if someone else sees you and they don't understand that, that that's not a sin anymore, and they adopt your behavior, then that person is now going to be engaging in something which actually is contrary to their conscience. That person will be violating their conscience, and in doing so, they will be sinning against God. Paul doesn't say that if you're exercising your freedom and someone sees you and is offended that that's sinful. Paul says if someone sees you exercising your freedom and they don't go on the journey into knowledge, if they just pick up your behavior and take it on as their own, and in doing so they go, oh, that's a sinful behavior, but they're doing it, I'm just going to do it. Then in that moment, the person exercising their freedom has actually sinned against someone. The person has sinned against someone. They have caused them to violate their conscience. And we talked about a few different ways then that we see this play out in our day-to-day activity, that we can have freedoms that we enjoy, but there are other people who are going to view our freedoms as sinful, and we need to be very careful what we do with our freedoms so that other people are not caused to violate their conscience. So we're going to read through chapter 8 and then into chapter 9 because Paul then takes this idea and does something very precise with it. And if we take it out of context then we're going to miss and perhaps misunderstand what Paul's point is. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to read through then straight into chapter 9. Now about food sacrifice to idols, we know 
that we possess all knowledge, talking about the apostles, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. And those are the two things being contrasted in this chapter. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. So then about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things come and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things come and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. And if you remember last week, we talked a little bit about Gnosticism and some of the Greek philosophy which had started being brought into the church and people had tried to Christianize it. Not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us nearer to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, that's the sin that their conscience is wounded, then you sin against Christ. If this person adopts your free behavior, the behavior that you have a right to, the behavior that you are entitled to, if a person adopts this and violates their conscience, it says here, you sin against them and you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. Paul goes on, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas, which is Peter? Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? Do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. This is Paul's main point that we're going to unpack. But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple? And that those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar, talking about the temple. 
In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But I have not used any of these rights. And I'm not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me, for I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, since I'm compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge and so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessing. Paul is making one point throughout this entire passage of Scripture. That's why we are doing 23 verses of it this morning, because Paul is making one point. He begins here by comparing himself to the other apostles, as well as to the Lord's brothers and to Peter. Now, when we have a look later on in Galatians, I think it's Galatians chapter 2, we see that there is a confrontation that happens between Paul and Peter. And Paul writes about this to the Galatian church. He says, I... I confronted Peter to his face because there were Judaizers, there were people who were telling people that they needed to still adopt all the Jewish customs, and they had come down from Jerusalem. Now, we know that the guy who's in charge of the church in Jerusalem is called James, and James is referred to in Scripture as the brother of Christ. We believe that he was the biological son of Joseph and Mary, one of several brothers and perhaps sisters that Jesus had. And so what happens here is Paul is saying, here are these other apostles, the Lord's brothers, read their James and Peter. And Paul begins by saying, am I not free in the same way that all of the other apostles are free? Don't I have the same rights as all of the other apostles? And you can see in red here is all of the first person references that Paul gives to himself. I, our, my, we. And he's saying that here are the rights that these others have, and I have access to those same rights. And specifically, he mentions his right to be able to take a wife along with him and his right to be able to have an income from preaching the gospel. And Paul says, this is what the Lord has commanded. Then he goes into this. He asks three um, three rhetorical questions there in verse 7. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? It's implied no one does. Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Well, no one. Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? Well, no one. And Paul unpacks it and says, even the law says that I have this right. And then in verse 12, he gets to his point, if others have this right of support from you, if all of these other apostles who are actually not your apostle, but are just other apostles, if all these other apostles have this right from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. Paul is making the same point he made in chapter 8. He is entitled to something and he deliberately does not lay hold of it. He is entitled to something, and he deliberately does not lay hold of it. And he says here, on the contrary, verse 12, 
we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. He fleshes this point out a little bit more from verse 13 onwards. He says, you know, in the same way the Lord has commanded, those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. And again, his main point, I have not used any of these rights. And then he starts explaining why. If he closes off these rights that he has he has permission to access, if he says, you know what, I'm allowed to take a wife and I don't, I'm allowed to have an income from the church and I don't, and, and this is a good thing. When I don't do that, something really good happens. Verse 17, if I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. There is a good thing that happens when I can preach voluntarily, when I'm not on a payroll, when I'm not, I'm not um, simply discharging the trust committed to me. Something else starts going on, and it is this. Verse 18, I can offer it free of charge and not make use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. I am free, verse 19, and belong to no one. Paul here is saying that when he does not accept money from anyone, when he works with his own hands as a tent maker, when he is simply another business person in the district, when he's not on the official payroll of the apostles, he is free and he belongs to no one. And then he says what he does with his freedom, and he says that he is a Jew to the Jews, that he is a Gentile to the Gentiles. Remember, Paul, right at the start of this, is comparing himself to Peter. He's comparing himself to James. He's comparing himself to the other apostles, and he's saying, I get to do something that they can't do. I have a freedom that they don't have. Paul is making one point here. Remember, he is entitled to something and he does not lay hold of it. And by stepping back from what he is entitled to, something of the gospel gets sharper. By not laying hold of something that he is entitled to, by stepping back from it, something of the gospel gets sharper. This is what Paul is on about. And this is the word that we're going to sit and chew on for a minute because this is really what Paul is talking about is entitlement. Because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, because his shed blood has covered your sin, because you cannot outsin the blood of Christ, because you cannot overwhelm it with your brokenness, because we cannot corrupt it, because it will always cover over all of our sinfulness, because it has set us free from the law of sin and death, it means that we have extraordinary freedom. We are entitled to be extraordinarily free. But all because we're entitled to be extraordinarily free, it doesn't necessarily mean that laying hold of all of that in its fullness is actually going to be the best step forward. Let me explain it in, um, in terms that we'll understand. Because we, we can see this all the time. If we go, oh, the church is going to apply for a government grant. Is the church entitled to apply for a government grant? Well, yeah, if, if we have the right framework and the right system and we qualify for it and they have all their criteria, we are entitled to apply for a government grant. We can, we can get hold of that if we want to, but that means that we're going to be under the thumb of someone. We can see that, can't we? What if the Christian school applies for government grants? 
This is sometimes some of the conversation that goes on. Oh, Christian schools shouldn't shouldn't accept any government grants. Really, why? And there's this thing that lives in the back of our head to go. Oh, what if the government changes the rules? You know, whose thumb are we going to be under? This is the exact Paul. Uh, this is the exact point that Paul is making here, is to go that he is entitled to have an income from the church. He is entitled to take a believing wife along with him. But Paul has seen the dynamic at work between James and the other apostles and Peter. And so he says, actually, you know what? I'm not going to have what I'm entitled to because that then frees me. He actually uses the word boast in here. He says, I would not let anyone deprive me of this boast. Verse 15, I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. And he says, you know what? If I was getting paid, then then I would just be discharging um, the trust that's given to me. But because he has stepped back from any of these other things, which are good things, which are healthy things, which are wonderful things, because he stepped back, he is now able to do ministry in a way that the other apostles can't. He can now do ministry in a way that the other apostles can't. He can be like a Jew to the Jews and like a Gentile to the Gentiles, and to the weak he becomes weak to win the weak. Let me give you a strange example of this. Sometimes wearing a hat that has pastor written on it invisibly gets in the way of being able to have conversations with people. Let me give you an example. A couple of years ago it happened for the first time. I had a day off and there's a particular business I won't mention because it probably violates OH&S. But they let me they let me go in and use a hoist. You know, hoist where you drive a car in, put it up in the air, play with it, get filthy dirty. It's wonderful. I don't even remember what car I was working on at the time. So I'm in there, I've got my overalls on, there's grease in my hair, I'm, and I, I just, it's like a pig in mud, it was wonderful. And so I'm in there working on this thing, whatever it was, and it's time for a tea break. So we go in, we sit down, and, and they hand me a mug, and everyone's just sort of sitting around, and then one of their customers walks through the door. And this guy's effing this, and effing that, and oh, this is effing funny, and this, and all the rest of it. And the other guys in there know who I am, we're, we're friends, and they're looking out of the corner of their eye at me like this, and then there's a moment where one of them says, oh, you've met Father Bob. (laughs) And I'll give you one guess how quickly the conversation changed. Because I could no longer have a conversation with that person without, without the payroll that I'm on and the position that I hold now being a set of conditions, whether I liked it or not, which came to that conversation. So it actually means that if I was, if I was working a job, swinging a hammer, standing behind a counter, pulling a wheelbarrow somewhere, that the opportunity for mission and ministry would actually be a sharper opportunity for mission and ministry because there are some things that wouldn't be getting in the way. Can we see that? This means that there are people that you are going to be able to reach and do ministry to that any pastor is never going to be able to do mission and ministry to because it gets in the way. There are people in your organization that you work for. There are people in the social group that you work for that depending on your status, depending on on whether or not you are allowed to pull rank on them, 
depending on whether or not they owe you money or you owe them money, depending on any of these other things, those things actually can interfere with the gospel. See, Paul is writing to who? He's writing to the Corinthian church. He's writing to a group of Christians. He's writing to people who, who are out in the marketplace, who are involved in all sorts of social activities. He's writing to ordinary people like you and me. And we need to sit ourselves in the Corinthian church and hear Paul's example given to us and to go, okay, Paul is saying that because he is free from a whole lot of those threads, he is able to do mission and ministry in a sharp way. He's allowed to pull rank on people. This is the whole point he's making about being an apostle. He's allowed to pull rank on people. He's allowed to hit them up for the money that really they should be giving him. This is the point that he's making. And he's saying that he steps back from all of that so that he can preach the gospel in a sharper way. So we have, we have this thought, entitlement, as it plays out in our business relationships, in our family relationships, in our friendships, in our social groups, entitlement says this, I will get what I want. I will get what I am allowed to have, what I am due. I will get what I want, and I actually don't care what it does to anyone else. I don't care the effect that it has on the gospel. If we just buy into entitlement, if we go, I have a right to a hundred things, I will have a hundred things. Paul says, actually, there's something more valuable here, and it's the gospel. You have the right to to a hundred things, absolutely. But what if you step back from some of the things that you are allowed to have, that you have the right to have, in order that the gospel may be proclaimed more sharply by your life, by my life? Giving up entitlement, giving up what we are allowed to have, costs us personally. Giving up what you are entitled to have costs you personally. Does it increase your freedom? Yes, it does. It increases our freedom to communicate the gospel because it's like cutting threads off ourselves, the strings that are attached by different things, but it also extends our credibility. This is one thing which is very difficult for any person who enters into ministry. Now, I didn't want to preach on this passage of Scripture this morning, but I told the Lord I didn't want to preach on this passage of Scripture, and he told me to suck it up. So we're going here. <laughs> it, is a, it is something that anyone who enters into ministry has to come to terms with, is that the moment you step onto the payroll of a church or a mission organization, it changes the way people will hear the gospel when you proclaim it. It changes it. And there is a wonderful beauty sometimes for me personally being able to go and chat to a group of people who don't know me and who aren't contributing to us paying our bills and school fees and, and all the rest of it. There is a kind of freedom sometimes that, that comes when, when those threads aren't attached, when you get to be in those spaces. So let's chew on this in some real-world context. Someone cuts you off in traffic. What are you entitled to do? I'll give you a hint, it's right in the middle of the steering wheel. <laughs> you are entitled to express yourself and your displeasure. You are entitled perhaps to put your window down and make a less than joyful noise. <laughs> you are allowed to express yourself. You are entitled to that. So what happens though if you go, you know what, I'm going to step back from what I'm entitled to do. Have you ever had it where... And maybe you've had this experience, maybe you haven't. 
where you're in traffic and something happens or there's someone that you just, oh, why they, you know, they've cut me off four or five times now, whatever it is, and then you pull into the same service station as the person. <laughs> These things happen. Now, we're using a silly example. Someone cuts you off in traffic, but some of you, someone cuts you off in business. Someone cuts you off in the social club or the sporting club that you're in. Someone cuts you off socially. Someone interrupts. Someone gets in your way. Someone offends you. See, stepping back from what we are entitled to do, all of a sudden it costs us, but it increases our freedom to communicate the gospel to that person because they're expecting us to be upset or they're expecting us to twist their arm or they're expecting us to have a go at them. And when we don't, it gives credibility to the word of God. Someone ruins your food. I'm amazed. I'm not amazed at how often people ruin my food. I'm amazed... (laughs) I'm amazed at how often, and you've seen this happen where you're out somewhere and you go, oh, cool, we're going to get a bite to eat or whatever it is, and there's someone in the room where their order has got mixed up or or something is not the right temperature, and what, what comes out of that person's mouth is verbal abuse. Some of us have been that person. What are you entitled to do? You are entitled to complain. You are entitled to speak your mind. You are entitled to address the situation. Again, this is a small example, but if you lay hold of what you are entitled to, perhaps you need to forget about telling the person about Jesus. What about if someone creates a big mistake or an opportunity for you at work? What if someone messes up some paperwork? Those of you who are in business, those of you who are in management, those of you who've been in that situation where someone makes a mistake and you can work this to your advantage. Some of those moments just feel like the Lord has provided an amazing thing. Sometimes it does, particularly if it's someone where the relationship has not been a comfortable, friendly relationship. Where someone creates a big mistake or an opportunity for you in in the marketplace in our work or or in a business dealing, what are you entitled to do? By law, by law is one thing. But do you want to preach the gospel to someone? Is there something in your heart more valuable than what you are entitled to? Remember, Paul says that he is entitled to an income, none of which he is accepting, and he is entitled to take a wife along with him, which he is deliberately not doing for the sake of the gospel? What if someone fails you personally? What if someone does not meet your expectations? What if what if there's a particular person, and who knows, it might be me, if there is someone where every time you look at that person, what you think is, it's not good enough. It's not good enough. That should never have happened. What if there's someone who has hurt you? What if there's someone who has wounded you, someone who has insulted you, someone who has disrespected you, someone who has gossiped about you, someone who has torn you down, someone who has belittled you and undermined you, someone who has had a real go at you, what are you entitled to? Justice? Truth? Vindication? What if we step back from what we are entitled to? It's going to cost us personally. Man, is it going to set us free? 
and it will extend our credibility to proclaim the gospel. Is there something in your life right now that you are entitled to? Something that you feel you are owed or or you ought to have that you have not received? Remember what Paul is comparing in this passage of Scripture. He's comparing the value of everything that he is entitled to and the value of, of the gospel itself. And for you, this week, you are going to be in situations where you can actually choose to step back from saying something that you are allowed to say, from writing something that you are allowed to write, maybe from a business deal that you are allowed to be involved in, maybe a relationship decision that you are allowed to make. And in doing so, it will actually change how sharp the good news of Jesus Christ is to someone else in this world. This is what Paul is talking about. We're going to pray and then we're going to do um, one, maybe two more songs. Linda, it's up to you to finish this morning. But this is hard stuff. Paul has now spent two chapters, chapter 8 and now most of chapter 9, talking about what we have a right to do. But our right is not supposed to be about ourselves. It's supposed to be other-focused and other-centered. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you know that there are few things more difficult than when there is something that we really want to say or to have or to do that we have every right to, but we need to step back from that. We need to give it up for the sake of the gospel, and that is such a hard thing to do. We remember the words that you said to Peter that you could call down 12 legions of angels. You had that entitlement, but there was something more valuable, and so you didn't. Lord Jesus, I pray for every one of us that you would give us the strength in these seemingly little things to be able to belong to you and to faithfully represent you. Lord Jesus, we want to be your people. We want people to really, truly come into contact with the real you. We don't want to get in the way of that. We don't want our words or our actions to ever get in the way of the gospel. So please prompt us. Holy Spirit, please prompt us. Please call the scriptures to our memory. Please remind us of the sacrifice of Christ. And Lord God, would you challenge us about those things that we are entitled to? Lord Jesus, we commit all these things to you, not because we are good, but because you are good. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.